Evening, everyone. How are you doing? Hello there, sir. Andy. Hey, Andy. How are we doing? Speak up at the back, Walker. Yeah, well, if I could shout from the south stand, I would. <laughs> Told you no football stuff. <laughs> of course. Oh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Hello, I'm Andy Walker, developer of Centuries The Pit, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with Paul Drury, Richard May and Tony Temple. To the Ted Dabney Experience. I'm Richard May, and I'm here, as always, with Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury. Hello. And the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic, Tony Temple. Hello. For this episode, we speak to a very rare breed, a Brit who made arcade games during the American coin-up golden age, Mr. Andy Walker. Taking us from the seafront arcade to Bridlington, East Yorkshire, to Miami Beach, Andy talks about the development of underground classic The Pit, working with the Stamper Brothers of Ultimate Play the Game and Rare Fame, and an unwarranted legal hustle from a notoriously litigious Atari. As always, thank you for listening, and please visit tdepodcast.net for all the social media links. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Andy, welcome to the podcast. You're, you're actually the first Brit we've had on the show, and with the best will in the world, I think you, you might be one of the few we have on the show. Given that so many uh, British coders have made big contributions to home computing and console games, Andy, why do you think you're one of the few that got into coin-op? Um, I think it was because, well, there was no industry to start with, and not many Brits are very good at business. <laughs> okay we're we're much better at writing than we are at selling or marketing that's interesting so the the fact that you know we haven't got the equivalent of a nolan bushnell uh you know in britain or even a, a Miyamoto over in japan you think that's mainly down to the business rather than the kind of ability to to make a game as you know in the 70s yeah certainly uh i don't think there was any shortage of ideas and you you're right Lots of British developers uh, had some of the best ideas for all of the early games, but most of them got their mass market through overseas companies. Right. We were just a bunch of uh, people enjoying ourselves. We went, go off to trade shows, meet people, and things happen from there. But it, but it would not have happened uh, without the marketing people that we met. Fascinating. Of course, whilst not many Britons made video games that ended up being in the arcades, we were not short of arcades uh, here uh, in uh, in our little island. Um, tell us how important it was that you were based in Bridlington in the 70s. Yeah, what a great place to grow up. Pin tables were my thing. The whole of the seafront is covered in arcades, and they're still some of the best in the land. The large ones were full family centres. Uh, there was a Dodgem track in the middle of Brown's Amusements. There were slots, uh, there were pushers, and there were pin tables. And they were noisy. 
there were the great noises of you know the solenoid thwacks against ordinary plywood uh, to get a replay but the noises were unlike everywhere else now tell us when those noises started changing and reflected the arrival of video games i mean can you remember the first time in a bridlington arcade that you actually saw a video game yeah it was very many years later uh, i'd been out into the world and made a career and come back to brid uh, but in there uh was it shootout the first wild west oh gunfight maybe gunfight yeah gunfight right. yeah i think that was probably the first uh but the bridlington arcades were really quick a guy called john sadler sadler automatics mm. he told me that he was the first uh, in the western hemisphere to have taito uh, space invaders in bridlington really <laughs> Right. Okay. So that's interesting. Bridlington was early adopters, even if the Brits weren't actually making these uh, games. Um, but of course, you ended up uh, making these games. What What made you think that you could have a go? I knew electronics. That had been my chosen career. Um, enjoyed electronics. Uh, but the place I was at was interested in high frequency. At least the courses that they were sending me on were higher and higher frequency and not enough uh, digital. When you say higher frequency, I'm sorry, you're going to have to help me out. What actual role were you, um, were you, had you got? Uh, I was an ordinary technician, uh, much later grand title of technical officers. Uh, But I was with um, GCHQ. Nobody had heard of it in those days. It was (laughs) just a little outpost of the foreign office. Have you had to sign the official secrets act, Andy? Oh, yes. This is why I asked you whether you can talk about your work. Um, Government Communications Headquarters carries out research and development in the field of communication and communication security on behalf of Her Majesty's Government. Let's come back to video games. Yes. Um, Your background in electronics, when you actually thought, right, I'm going to have a go at this, what did you... What kind of skills did you bring from your previous work into this venture into trying to make, you know, a a coin-op? Well, it... Yeah, quite a journey. Uh, whilst I was still in a small in a small laboratory in Cheltenham, and the first microprocessors were starting to drift across my desk, so I liberated an eighty eighty uh, development kit from the training department and found that I was immediately hooked. It wasn't a gradual process; it was day one. I wanted to do this. Uh, there were eight switches and eight LEDs, and that was, oh, nine switches, because you had to actually push that byte into the memory. Uh, that was it. That's all you had. But I could make it uh, flash the lamps, flash the LEDs. But if it got to the middle one and you hit the middle switch, I could reverse the direction of the LEDs. Uh, and from that moment, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Can I say it's quite a step from getting LEDs to light up to, you know, creating, you know, your version of Space Invaders or Defender? Yeah, yes. But um doesn't really matter how simple it is. If it's a good game, it's a good game. Um, I'd quit the department by then and I was uh, selling colour monitors to the Open University to make some money. Ah, so that means that you got access to monitors, which, uh, yeah. you know, are quite crucial in coin ops. Yeah, absolutely. I knew what I wanted to do, and I just needed to assemble the parts. Uh, Built the first processors. Uh, They were tangerine kits. 
you need a soldering iron and a little bit of patience, but before long you would get an asterisk that you could move about on the screen. The Tangerine computer that you speak of, Andy, can, can, can you just tell us a little bit more about that, that kit and what you had to do to it in order for it to um, do what you wanted it to do? Yeah, I needed to get myself uh, trained in the first place. It was to be built, but it was a 6502 processor. So luckily I'd started with what I thought was uh, the best processor, the kindest processor for, for programmers that I could. Mm. But it just had a simple black and white, well, monochrome anyway, uh, output, uh, which you tuned in on your television. It was much later that I was able to get that all hooked up to a monitor. Okay. So was it was it the 6502 that was the light bulb moment you realised this would this piece of kit would enable you to write arcade games? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. It was as soon as um, I could do it. Tangerine were extremely helpful and had built up uh, additional boards. Uh, they sent me a couple of uh, extra uh, high resolution in those days high-resolution uh, graphics boards. So I could smack one of them into the red, another into the green, and another into the blue gun, and uh, and away we went. Suddenly I had something that would work. Mm. And in terms of timeline, Andy, what, what year are we talking about here when you started to sit down to, to develop? I think it was 1980. Okay. I was running, I was running a licensed restaurant at the time, but it was uh, in Bridlington, so it was seasonal. So I had all winter to write. One of the common themes we hear talking to um, people from way back when is the rather sort of um, perverse notion that the restrictions in hardware meant you had no choice but to write playable games. Was that the case with you, that the this very limited, almost laughable hardware that, that you were using compared to what we have today actually sort of, you know, drove your, um, uh, you know, creative juices, as it were? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, but... Um, I still believe that a good game doesn't really matter what the hardware is. Mm -hmm. What it certainly did teach me was um, the value of each machine cycle, the uh, necessary efficiency to get something to respond well enough. Uh, the user interface was so, so important. If it didn't react straight away, it was just not worth having. And I'll be honest, that is still the case today. Whatever you're in, JavaScript, HTML5, if you as a player want something to happen and it happens just a heartbeat too late, it ruins the experience. Right. And and so turning turning this very simple hardware into your first very early games, Andy, Hunter and Andromeda, could you tell us a bit about what inspired you to go down the road of those two respective games? Yeah, certainly. Andromeda was really the first one. And it was, um, if I'm being kind, it was inspired by Defender. And Defender was far and away, still is, my favourite ever coin-op game. Um, Hunter was different. Hunter was um, an entirely different view. So I wanted a minimum of three games. Uh, to launch. Andromeda was, everybody understood how to play it straight away. It was a side-on space shoot'em. The pit we know about was, again, uh, completely different from Andromeda. A side-on but tunnelling and digging game. And Hunter was an overview, a view from above, a bombing game. It's true to say that Hunter had the least amount of work put into it. 
and it was the weakest of the three. Uh, but it was enough to prove the principle. I had three games and we produced them in one cabinet at the same time so that the player could decide which game they wanted to play. Uh, that meant that we only had one bunch of um, housekeeping and coin acceptance and general operating system mm -hmm. with three hot swappable games on the top. And you could add others uh, without turning the cabinet off. You just plug them in and they added themselves to the menu. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this, and this is this is probably quite a rabbit hole we could go down, but one could argue that your little system there significantly predated the direction in which the industry tried to, to go to more towards the mid-80s. Um, so I'm thinking here in terms of Sente, who had a similar idea, which was a single cabinet which you could swap swap games in and out um, for cost-efficiency reasons, and the, the Nintendo versus system, and obviously what came later even, which was the... Uh, Jammer system. Did, I mean, presumably that was a homegrown idea. <laughs> yes, it was completely wrong as well. <laughs> it, it had everything to do with writing and, and nothing to do with business. Okay. Uh, when, I, when I eventually met somebody who knew what they were doing, yeah. they said, but you can sell them three. Why would you sell them one when you can sell them three separate ones? Okay. I did learn. Uh, so that system was was there to serve a practical purpose as opposed to a uh, business model that that you thought would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, it it got us started and we did okay. test it. Uh, we actually showed it at trade shows as well, and that that did get people's attention and it brought us to people's attention. In in fact, it tested really really well. But I still think, in business terms, it it was the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. And in and in terms of the feedback of these early games, Andy, you know, everybody thinks their own dog is the best dog in the world. I mean, how did you go about trying to get a sense of whether these games were going to be popular or not? Well, we we tested them. We uh, it's also fair that, that we never thought that Andromeda or the Pit or Hunter were as good as Defender. Uh, we always knew we would be measured against the best in the land, and for us. That was the best. But there was a shortage of video games and every pub needed video games. So there was a huge market. Uh, we tested it by just delivering it in the back of an old Nissan van and watching over it, watching people, talking to people and then emptying the cash box. Brilliant. You mentioned these trade shows. That you attended and um, looking back at some of Paul's interviews with you for Retro Gamer magazine you mentioned um, was a preview show at the Cunard Hotel which uh, which later became Novatel and you met a gentleman called Joel Hotchberg and he would be I guess the a, a key figure in um, in getting your software into uh, before the eyes of, um, of the Americans yeah exactly right um, the preview show was I think it was put on by Ruffler and Deeth at the time and we took a small pitch um went down in the van unloaded uh, the cabinet but it was tangerine hardware yeah and the rom board uh was playing up right for the main operating system okay. uh but we did have a tape backup honestly try <laughs> try not to laugh too loudly it <laughs> no, was no, it's a, fine. a cassette put yourself back to 19 i think it was 1982 sure uh when we did that preview show so uh, we've set up uh, the trade show and the doors will open uh, at 10 a.m. 
And at 10 to 10, the electrician said, well, we're just going to take this this row of booths off. Mm. Uh, but no worries, we'll be back in five minutes. But the tape took 20 minutes to load. <laughs> so, okay. so our opening shot at the most important trade show was a blank screen for the first 15 minutes. Wow. I've, I've, this is the only other um, tape-based system that I'm personally i mean i i've heard of the deco system which um which which was used for some japanese games i think they had burger time running on a deco tape system is is that is that drastically different to the kind of thing i mean you're talking about a modified tangerine like a homemade modified custom board and computer right yes it was modified and and it wasn't meant to load from tape that was our fallback position because the rom board was intermittent uh, normally it would fire up extremely quickly but uh, those are show days, aren't they? That's amazing. So you, you had this, you had this um, ready as a backup. Oh yeah, yeah, and thank goodness, eh? Predating the A team as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we lock you in a in a in a Novatel with um with a with, with a tangerine, some rom code, and uh, and a problem, and you come out with a flame throwing tank. Yeah, yeah. As long as we have a Land Rover to start with, we've got it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Andy, you were talking about this three-game cabinet that you'd come up with. I mean, the game that uh, our listeners will know about will be The, the Pit. But I'm, I'm kind of intrigued because didn't The Pit actually start with a bug in one of the other games on there, Andromeda? Yeah, yes, exactly. All the screens were bitmapped and Andromeda was a sideways view of a spaceship. So if you imagine the fins on the back of the spaceship were the largest or tallest bits of it, uh, it was fine going um, left, sorry, right to left, it was fine. But going left to right, it left bits on the screen. It failed to rub out the fins properly. But going back the other way, uh, it did rub out properly. So it was effectively tunneling through this blit screen. As soon as it happened, uh, I was working with uh, the late Tony Gibson uh, at that point. Tony had joined us from Somerset and we were just working in a back room. But this on the screen... We just knew right there, that's a brilliant effect. Put it in the ideas bag now. Is that a metaphorical ideas bag or did you have a real ideas <laughs> bag? We did need to remember. I was young in those days. I could remember things. <laughs> um, you've mentioned there that you weren't working alone. And um, for those of us who went on to get a Commodore 64, Tony Gibson wrote some great games for that machine, Bozo's Night Out and Jamming. Tell us about how you recruited Tony, particularly you mentioned that he was from Somerset. So I presume that's quite a long way from Bridlington. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just placed an advert in World's Fair. Uh, that was the, the showman's magazine or the showman's newspaper. And they were our big target market back to the arcades again. Anybody like to write games, phone this number. Uh, was, that, was it as simple as that? Do you want to write an arcade game? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so when this guy phoned up, by the way, I've got to know, did he have a broad Somerset accent? No, no, he didn't. No, sounded like <laughs> London to me. <laughs> All right. OK. Um, is that how did you kind of explain what you were trying to do? It, everything was really simple in those days. There, there was no great jargon. I had no right to think that I could be successful writing coin-op games, but I wanted to do it and I thought I could. And Tony thought he could too. 
or at least he really wanted to give it a go. Mm. So I didn't have a factory yet. I didn't have premises yet. I said, but if you want to come up, uh, we'll get a flat. We can work out of my back room in my house and we'll we'll get it done. That is a pioneering spirit. Tell us how the game started. Then you've had this light bulb moment where you think, ah, we can sort of tunnel and dig. Maybe there's a game in that. Where did it go from there? I mean, did you, did you get a piece of A4 paper and start sketching out? What, what happened next? I think everybody, every game designer had squared graph paper. <laughs> it, it's the four by... In fact, the, there is some of it in the um, Centre for Computing History. Uh, I lodged a load of the early designs with them for uh, forever. But it's, there's so much of it on squared paper. And you can see it in the pit game, can't you? Everything is an eight by eight square. It goes through all of the game design, but it was it was adding uh, what became known as the zonka. It was the time constraint that made it a great game later. Uh, the zonka. Can you can you tell me for what the zonka was <laughs> and its purpose? Its purpose was to scare you. Uh, you had landed just the other side of the mountain. Uh, the bad guys landed and set off to get you. But in the meantime, uh, it was like a tank firing shots through the mountain, blasting its way through. And your only means of escape was your spaceship right in the path of the Zonka. So that was the time ticker. You've got this long and no longer. I think that's beautiful because you could have many games, Donkey Kong or whatever, just had a timer on screen. You, there was something about having that tank in the top right-hand corner rather than just a, a clock counting down that certainly added to the tension. It certainly did. The, the time penalty and the risk of absolute death and failure, you could actually see it coming towards you. It, it, was, it was not an equal speed either. <laughs> uh, when, the, when the shell first left the tank, it hit the mountain quickly, but the further it burrowed through, the longer it took to get there. It was only a bit, but it gave you that sense that you can just stretch it a little bit more nearer the end. And you ne and you never could. It always got you. What I really like about the pit is all the sort of different bits on the screen. I mean, back then when it came out in the 80s, it was it was a single screen game. There felt like lots of bits of it. So there was actually at the at the bottom there, there were the jewels that you had to, to collect. But what are those things falling on your head? What are they supposed to be? It's just a rock cavern. That's what it is. Okay. It, it's a cavern and all the stalactites, but we didn't do points. All the stalactites were going to get you because you disturbed everything. Oh, I see. Um, whilst it's a great game, I want to know that the um, you are a stick man, right? So I'm I'm not taking the mickey, but I, I, did either of you have an artistic background, Andrew? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of show a tiny bit. Would that be fair? Yeah, but he has uh, a really limited uh, size. I know that size isn't important. <laughs> it's the number of pixels. That's that. That's an interesting way to go with that one, right? Um, you there's aliens in there as well. Um, were they modelled on anything? The, the aliens that are sort of patrolling the the corridors, if you like. Uh, we wanted them to be spiders. Oh. Uh, much later, we got really good spiders when we got a really good artist in a different game setting altogether. But in the pit, they were they set off to be spiders, but they were just just the bad guys marching along. They will get you. 
they were, they remind me of Cybermen. They're sort of relentless. Yes, yes. Yeah. that's um, it. Relentless is a good word. Yeah. Now the the game has the, the mechanic of the game. Whilst you're digging, you could have just got your little man to sort of walk through and create the tunnel. But no, he has this strange kind of. Well, is it a gun? Is it a <laughs> is it a spade? What is the thing that he's using to to get through the dirt? Yeah, it, Tony named it. Uh, it Did became he? yeah, it became the bluter. The bluter. The bluter. Right. The guy's bluter, uh, it lit up the whole square ahead of him and trashed it. And then he walked forward. (laughs) It's a lovely uh, mechanic. Um, I've heard that the games, it's all about finding the perfect route to the bottom and then back up, avoiding or shooting the aliens and then over the pit and the dash to the end. Um, It's been compared to like a driving game, which seems odd. But can you see that sense of finding the perfect route? Yeah, yeah. And I like the pit still uh, because it's, it doesn't constrain you. It isn't obvious where you need to go. You can have um, your own special route, which might work, especially uh, when there's plenty of time. But later, you will hone those skills and have a perfect route. And when you've found it, there's nothing quite like it. It's like finding the racing line. Exactly, yeah. Uh, just just one more on this. You're still finding your way on, in the arcade business. You've got these three games. Was it very clear that the pit was going to be the one that caught people's eye? Or, or was it a surprise when it seemed to be the one that got most interest? Um it was my favourite game of the three, but uh, we'd actually got to test uh, the three-game cabinet over in Miami, uh, a company, coin-op company. You're right, it was Joel Hochberg, and he had uh, some good license concessions in the USA. So we tested there, and the best game was the one that took most money. And that is still today true. Whatever you think of it, the one that the public vote for with their money, that's the best one. Andy, briefly, um, Joel went up to set up Rare, didn't he, eventually? Yeah. uh, Tell us more about Joel, please, if you don't mind. Joel was, uh, I like Joel a great deal. Uh, We met him first at that Cunard preview show in London. He was, at the time, the agent for a small company in, it was called Xilec Electronics, in Burton-on-Trent. Mm. Okay. Uh, their MD was Norman Parker, and their chief engineer uh, was Chris Stamper. Oh, the Stamper, so Chris of the Stamper Brothers fame. Indeed, yes. So, although I didn't see Chris until some weeks later, uh, I was then working with Norman Parker of Xilec, and his agent was Joel Hochberg of Coinit Companies of Miami. Right. That was the pivotal uh, introduction uh, because he understood business. He understood what was going to sell, how to market it, and the fact that the hardware that we'd written wouldn't make it in the commercial world. Right. So there were some tough decisions ahead. So the boy from Bridlington found his games in the Fontainebleau Hotel in on Miami Beach. Yeah. Doing very well, I believe. Exactly that, yeah. But the biggest problem we had on the test was that people who wanted to play the pit sometimes played Andromeda by mistake. Right. Because they just couldn't pick it quickly enough from the menu. So that told us quite a lot. So, Andy, uh, you're now exhibiting your games internationally, so to speak. 
were in a Miami trade show. All three games are out there. And of course, as we now know, the pit was picked up by Century of Hialeah in um, Miami. Can you tell us a bit about how, how that deal came about? Yeah, it became about because uh, Joel... Uh, wanted it to happen. Uh, he believed in the game and he was extremely good at talking. Uh, he was also good at negotiating good uh, license deals. They were very good for us. I'd never heard of anything quite like that. And I think at the time it was the highest license fee per cabinet in the history of CoinOp. Wow. At the time. Can you tell us how much it was? $136 per unit. Wow. Okay. Hmm. So for every The Pit cabinet that was rolled off the production line, a payment of $136 was made. Yes. Presumably to, to Joel's outfit, and then you would have received a cut of that? Correct. And he was good at negotiating with Centuri and also good at negotiating with Zilek and me. So you can imagine the cake being cut quite a few times. Mm -hmm. But... I was really, really happy because it was already 10 times more than I thought I was going to get. Right. Okay. And um, do you know how many were actually produced by Century? No, I, I've never been sure. Mm. We made the billboard charts uh, with the pit as Century mm. and that sort of self-fueled it for a while, but it did drop off. Uh, the, the video market was quite cruel in those days and... Uh, technology and the next game out was the one to have. Right. So, uh, so when it wasn't any good, it really wasn't any good. Your customized tangerine machines, Andy. Um, what, what did Century do? Did they take those, or did they did they take your tech and run with it and do their own version? Uh, they tried to run with the tangerine tech but couldn't. Right. They couldn't produce enough of them that would stay working for long enough. Right. And so they asked if they could rewrite it onto their existing coin-op hardware. Okay. Uh, why would I say no to that? It was great. I had a complete veto. Uh, they did modify uh, a couple of items and the way things looked a little bit, uh, but I liked their version every bit as much as mine. And they would bring it to the party. And then in a, in a, in a, in a neat little bit of circularity, um, when the pit returned to the UK, I believe that Chris and Tim Stamper uh, modified a Galaxian board. That's exactly right, yeah. Uh, I think Tim joined uh, a little later, uh, but Chris uh, was instrumental in getting that to work on a Galaxian board because that was, that was like the staple diet of every arcade machine. Everybody had... Uh, something that was nearly a Galaxian board because they would rip that off. They would rip the hardware off as well as the ROMs. Yeah. Well, speaking as a collector, that, that's a treasure trove because you can go for the, the UK Galaxian version. You could go for the Century version. You could go for your original Tangerine version. Um, the world is your oyster. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, it went through a few versions. Uh, and I guess that's the same for almost every coin-op game that wasn't a time when it rolled off somebody's keyboard straight into the arcades. Mm. I guess the pit, the pit qualifies as the Stamper Brothers' first published work. Yeah. You're right about the uh, Galaxian hardware, uh, Andy. I, I have been on a number of what we call arcade raids where we go to old operators, you know, warehouses and pull out dusty old 30 and 40-year-old bits of PCBs and Lord knows what else. And um, many a time when somebody pulls a board out and says, 
anyone know what this is? They'll say, oh yeah, it's it's a Galaxian boot or it's a it's something else on a original Galaxian board. Yeah. So yeah. there was there was quite a lot of that going on for sure. Yeah, there was, but it was a very good board. Mm. Yep. Um, Andy, there, there was mention as well of, uh, as I understand it, of a handheld version. Yeah. Yeah, I nearly got seriously rich with that. Uh-huh. It was nearly. Living the high life by then with an agent in the USA and toing and froing on British Airways, uh, trying to get the deal done. I think it was Bandai. It, it sounded really good. They wanted the pit and they were going to pay me uh, one US dollar per unit produced which was fabulous because they wouldn't start unless they were going to make a million units. And on the day of signing, they decided they were going to go with a different game altogether. Thank you. Goodbye. Wow. Andy, you mentioned that you ended up working with the Stampers and and indeed it looks like um, the pit could have been technically the first game that uh, the Stampers worked on. Um, They're obviously not only very well known, but also slightly mysterious. So you knew them right in the early days. So Chris first, what what was the guy like? Uh, Chris was a fabulous engineer. Uh, Quiet, unassuming, not in the slightest bit aware of how good he was as an engineer. Tim was a designer. They were completely different characters. Both of them were great. Uh, Chris helped me hugely uh, later when I did um, a licensed version for uh, Rare. And in terms of his really fundamental understanding of both the hardware and programming techniques, uh, I had never met anybody quite like him. He was just really accomplished, but he didn't think he was. Could you tell that they were going to be, you know, both of them were going to be destined for great things? Yeah, yeah. Um, It didn't matter that they were at that time working for Norman Parker at Xilek. Mm. It was clear that uh, they were going to make their own way and their own path. And uh, it was no surprise when Jetpack appeared. Yeah, which has a very sort of arcade feel. That was, which was amazing when it came out on the Spectrum. Yeah. So do you think they they cut their teeth in the arcade business? And are you saying that you can tell that then from the games that came later? Yeah, I think it's a great pedigree uh, to come to the, uh, the home world with a coin-op background. If you think of the home world, I'm not sure that the early games had things like high score tables which were, you know, all the basics of how to score and how to engage the player came really from CoinUp. I think you've got an insight in in a game that the Stampers were involved with, which is not always credited to them, and that's Blueprint. Are you pretty sure that that's one of their games? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Xilek designed the hardware. Chris had a big hand in that, but I know he had... I can't remember his name. I think it was Dave who had a, a mass of green wire with which he could modify uh, <laughs> modify the, the, the sprite capability and the DMA capability. Uh, but they understood the hardware. But Blueprint, I actually think their first ever game on their own hardware was something called Gwyn, G-W-N-N. Okay. That turned out to be Game With No Name. Oh, I see what they did there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you see that then? Because I, I, yeah. I've not heard of Gwyn and, and it's not on MAME. I know that. Um, did that ever come out? Uh, I don't think it formally came out. I did some later work on it uh, for Xilek after the boys had legged it. Okay. 
<laughs> so I took over and suddenly thought I'd better learn some Z80 and got it done. Right. So you've technically collaborated with the stampers not once but twice. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Andy, we all love the pit. It's it's a great game. Lots of digging. Okay, hang, hang on, Andy. This is you can own up to us. You were just ripping off Dig Dug, weren't you? That's a red rag to a bull, isn't it? Yeah. What what happened there? Because the games came out quite closely in terms of release, and they are pretty similar. So, what's the story there? Yeah, it very nearly did for me. Did Dig Dug. <laughs> Uh, I'll take you back to that uh, trade show in 1982. And we were showing uh, our three-game cabinet. And we met a lot of people, including um, Joel Hochberg and Norman Parker. But as you do at trade shows, you're demonstrating this to anybody that comes by. And there were a couple of visits from a group of Japanese people. Not unusual, because they were very, very active in the industry. But they were really quite taken with the pit and wanted to know what happened uh, later. Because originally, the pit was designed to have multiple screens. And although we'd got them drawn on this magic graph paper, we'd never actually got them written. And in the final screen, uh, there was a dragon. Ah. And the idea of the game was to dig down and focus all the light of the bluter through the jewels that you'd collected to blow up the dragon. Okay. And you win. So... That never appeared. But I remember distinctly talking to these Japanese people and describing the final scene where you blow up the dragon. Ah, which is about inflating. But is, is that what you meant? Was your dragon going to be inflated? <laughs> no, it was lost in translation, wasn't it? We were there. Let's blow up the dragon in the final scene. <laughs> and that's how it came across to them, evidently. So they uh, they were Namco. Ah, and Namco's distributor in UK was Atari. So a little bit later, I got a I got a very neat letter from Atari UK saying, we're going to sue your ass. Wow. And that must have been terrifying, Andy. Well, it would have completely shut us down and taken my house. It would have done the lot. Christ. But that's where business sense came in. Takes you right back to the first question you asked me about Joel Hochberg. He was the agent for the pit, and he knew that in the USA you could register copyright. You can't do that in UK, but you can in USA. Right. So he had me get all of these printouts and listings and designs, annotate them all and register them in the USA. Right. So when we went away to check, our copyright date was three weeks ahead of Dig Dug's. Perfect. So can you remember the exact words you used to Atari? To point out that actually they'd ripped you off. Oh, it was tempting. Uh, but again, Joel said, you can, you can go and get them, but you'd be fighting a multi-million dollar company and your fighting fund back at AW Electronics is four quid. <laughs> right, right. So you can go and get them, but you will have to fight them in a US court or you could just get on and write the next game. So that's what we did. Do you ever do you ever regret that decision? No, no. It it would have completely consumed us um, in later life. Uh, getting involved in litigation is just a complete killer. It's everything that a uh, a designer should not do. If you are creative, you need to stay away from litigation. It it just produces all the bad vibes, and it's bad for you. <laughs> 
Andy, were you, uh, were you not tempted to um, produce a sequel to The Pit, which was incredibly successful for Century? Yeah, we should have done. Uh, but at the time, uh, the coin-op market was changing really quickly. Right. And the home market was opening up and it was becoming a reality for things other than consoles. And that's, that's what I was really interested in. So I took on a couple of um, contracts for the coin-op world. Uh, somebody that could write in Z80 and understood what a joystick had to do. And you could have the contract because the market was disappearing. And I think an awful lot of companies went to the wall at that time. It's about 1984 in USA, I think. Yeah, sure. So the, the, the infamous uh, video game crash. Yeah, yeah. That was tragic. What a shame. But the um, the home market was just blooming at that time. It was just ready wasn't it it was ripe so you had something some something called um super brains or uh, or pipeline in the pipeline um <laughs> as it happens um tell us about that yeah indeed uh part of working with the stampers and xylec uh they brought their own hardware to the to bear which was great yeah loads of sprites loads of scrollable background and the development system uh, that they recommended ran on uh, Intertech Superbrains. Right. It was it was really just a CPM80 machine, but they were an all-in-one at the time. I actually had a hard drive on one of them, uh, quite quite something. So Tony and I had these uh, Intertech Superbrains. Oh, so you so you bought those machines with with the proceeds um, of the pit, and, yeah. and and on you went. Yep. Yep. Uh, ROM emulators were quite expensive at the time, but you couldn't really develop without them. So we just put everything back into the development kit and the market was folding. That was, um, yeah, I could have I worked that out a bit better. Andy, um, I, I'm really interested in the fact that you went out of coin-op into the home market, particularly uh, the Commodore 64 and you set up Tasset. Can you tell us what kind of things that you'd learned from the arcade days that you took into making home games? It was, um, I think it was a professionalism that showed. At the time, uh, if you recall the first breed of Commodore 64 games, uh, some of them were a flashing green asterisk and they called it Sheepdog or something. Yeah. <laughs> but but they sold. We came along uh, with games that were a bit better put together, but they also had a feel about them. As I say, you could score, see the score. You could change between player one and player two. You could record the high score. And most importantly, it didn't crash. That's interesting. So that kind of... Uh... And a robustness that you'd learnt from having a game that's out there in the arcade. You took that to home games. Yeah, we did. Um, we took some of the game ideas too. Ah, yes, tell us. You mentioned Pipeline earlier. Yes. Uh, Pipeline began, again, it was just another one for the ideas bag. Uh, we were working away with our Intertech Super Brains and ROM emulators, looking like, like we knew what we were doing with technology. When there was a drip from the ceiling above, and a, a leak had occurred. Um, my dad turned up uh, with his plumber's kit uh, to fix this. And it was just really quite humorous. It, what a great job. He was actually, at that time, a retired chartered accountant. But he liked, he just liked plumbing. So he turned up with his little bag of tricks and I sort of followed him around and decided what he was doing and he stopped the leak. But the leak could have trashed 
the super brains, but it didn't quite. Something we got away with. But it was obvious, it was so humorous, that had to be a game where the plumber turns up to fix leaks. And Pipeline was born, but it never made it in coin-op. Yeah, we, I mean, many of us would have played Super Pipeline on the Commodore 64 a couple of years later, but uh, or years later. But um, so you're telling me that that started as an arcade game? Yeah. How far did it get? Oh, it was completely playable. Uh, the screen was the other aspect. You know, it's portrait rather than landscape. Uh, and the aliens were a little different. The leaks were uh, more troublesome. And there wasn't the same vibe out of it. It, it, it just didn't, it didn't make you giggle at any stage. So it just <laughs> never made it. So is, it, is there a board somewhere with the arcade version of Pipeline? <laughs> yeah, there probably is. Um, but it was that it ran on the Stampers hardware uh, on the Xilex board. And I did have, I think I probably sent it to Professor Allen. I can't remember his name. Professor Allen down in Kent, right. who runs a digital department down there, who was particularly interested in the early days of Coinop and wrote a couple of books on it. I think I sent him the hardware that I'd been, it had been in a box in the loft of three or four different houses <laughs> and eventually i just sent it to the guy and he said oh yeah great i can't seem to get it to work but that's as far as we went can i just say that is a real find that's i hope we can find the lost version <laughs> arcade version of pipeline um it's interesting that your games are still um people still love them and still remember them am i right in saying that someone's just done a version of the pit for the spectrum <laughs> this is really spooky Dave Tansley, good name check for the lad. He's just emailed me today, completely out of the blue, and said, here, I've done this, I've written it for the Spectrum. And he sent a link, and it's brilliant. It really is excellent. It's splendid. And it, a lovely little note at the end to say, that, please remember the pit is still loved after nearly 40 years. That, that's beautiful. Just one more on that, then. Didn't that make you think, bloody hell, I should have done a version of the pit for the Commodore 64, the Spectrum, the Dragon, anything? Yeah, yeah, but I didn't have an agent then. I didn't know uh, business still. I'd much rather be writing the next game. Andy, do you, just sort of looking back on those fledgling days of the early 80s and as a Brit developing games, which ended up on the big stage, the biggest stage of all, the, the American video coin-operated market, do you think the Brits could have put in a more robust effort in terms of video game development for arcades back then? Uh, no, I don't think it was really in the psyche. Uh, I think that some of the very best developers uh, went on to be big game developers, but not necessarily running the companies that marketed the product. Right. Uh, it's right back to day one. I, I think that writers are good at writing and marketing people I will never understand. Mm. Do you not do you not think though that there was perhaps some untapped talent in in the UK that companies like Century could have you know grabbed you for example and said right we just want you to write games for us and we will pay you you know a hundred bucks per per board sold. It would be great, wouldn't it? I I think if they'd understood <laughs> where there was a great pool of talent and and I still think it's the case mm. that. Understanding the user interface is still a vitally important thing, even if you're as big as Google. If, if modern applications are clunky or don't work, and the number of really bad websites spring to mind, that there is so much 
talent that's continued to grow through UK. Mm. And, and it still seems to be that if you have room in your mind for the possibility that you're wrong, then you can really get some good software written. Mm -hmm. Because it's always your fault in the end, isn't it? Yes. Um, that's a, a great quote by Rich Adam, um, who worked for Atari. Um, and he would often say that, that you know, uh, one of the worst ways you could wind up a programmer was to question their code. Because <laughs> it, it was just, just taken so, so, so personally. Well, there can't be anything wrong with my code. I wrote it. Indeed. Um, Andy, I, I, I wonder if you just give a few words about Tony Gibson, um, who se seems to have featured quite prominently in your early career. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, the late Tony Gibson, uh, he was uh, my first employee in the whole deal. And uh, he brought an awful lot, especially to the pit, probably more than any of the other games. And the number of hours that we'd spent writing, bear in mind, it was developed on a single pass assembler. Mm. So you had to know the absolute address of every subroutine. So it was hard work and it was quite, it was necessary to be diligent. But at the same time, you needed to sit back and actually roar with laughter when something just, just giggled on the screen. And then just, you've done for the day, go to the pub, because you're not going to better that. We had some excellent times. And it's known uh, very well that in later task set times, we fell out quite badly. Okay. And we went, we went our separate ways, but it didn't stop me being particularly sad when I heard of his demise. Mm. And there's a great deal of Tony Gibson in the coin-op world, as well as the home world. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And next time I am playing Dig Dug and I start inflating that dragon, I am going to think of you. You are the blow-up man, Andy. <laughs> thank you, Andy. Thank you. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. Your, your, our discussion was absolutely perfect. Absolutely fascinating story um, and one which I have absolutely no idea about. So um, thank you for enlightening us. Gentlemen, thank you very much for making it easy. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank <laughs> you.